Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear now God's word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Let me begin by acknowledging that as I assembled my various resources to study and prepare for this series of sermons on the letter to the Ephesians, I have been especially excited to tackle uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' eight-volume set of 232 sermons on Ephesians. Now, don't let that worry you. Uh, I'm looking forward to that, but I promise to give you less than 232 sermons. Uh, but Dr. Jones, and if you're not familiar with Lloyd-Jones, I would urge you to become familiar with him. He, uh, he lived from, he was born in 1899 and died in 1991, was a Welsh Protestant pastor, uh, preacher, and he was a medical doctor who was very influential in the reformed wing of the British evangelical movement of the 20th century. And for about 30 years, he was the minister at Westminster Chapel in London. And he has certainly been a big influence on my theology for many, many years. And so you'll be happy, as I said, to learn that uh, I do not plan to match Dr. Jones's quantity of sermons on this topic, but I do plan to draw heavily from his ideas and insights about Ephesians, something that I believe both you and I will benefit from greatly. Last week I introduced Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and I pointed out that central to this letter was his opening reminder of who they were and why they were here, which means who we are and why we're here. They were saints in Ephesus. We are saints in Nacogdoches, wherever God has us. And they were the faithful in Jesus Christ. As a result, these Christians were able to receive both the grace and the peace of God, regardless of what was going on around them, regardless of the situation and circumstances of the culture, regardless of how small they might have been, how overwhelmed they might have felt, whatever trials they were facing. Remembering and maintaining this reality, remembering this perspective, was critical for them, and it is critical for us. When we forget, which we often do, when we lose sight of who we are and why we are here, then every difficult circumstance upsets us and worries us. That's true of world events. If we're watching the news, it can be upsetting. It's true of personal events. I had a hard week, and it was discouraging. Or this situation, or this relationship, uh, we, because we can't see beyond the moment frequently, we forget who we are in Christ. We forget that God is always at work in us, and through the circumstances of our lives, that we fail to appropriate His grace and His peace. 
And so the Apostle Peter expresses this same idea in his first epistle, where he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved for us in heaven who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor, to your praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not seeing, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is a theme over and over in Peter and Paul and their writings. And so in Ephesians 1.3, Paul tells us how we are able to enjoy such grace and peace in the very midst of our various trials and the storms that are going on around us. It points to the foundation of who we are and why we are here. This verse sets the stage for the rest of the epistle. It's the theme that runs throughout. And if we understand this, if we have this embedded deep within us, if we learn to really apply this to everyday situations in our lives, then His grace and peace will become evident in us, and it will also become evident to those who are around us. I think we're tempted sometimes to think, you know, if some huge crisis broke out in the world, some mass persecution or something that was on the front pages of the paper, then we'd be prepared to start doing or thinking about these things. But remember, the tests come in the little daily things. <coughs> Pardon me, I've been sick all week and I'm recovering here, so I may have to stop a few times to uh, replenish. Um, so, it's applying these principles that we're going to talk about today, tomorrow, this evening at your house, at work, with this particular, whatever problem you're having right now. How do I do what Paul's talking about? How do I think about this problem in a way that enables me, no matter what it is, to have the grace and peace of God present in my life? So this is not theoretical. This is very, very practical. But it always starts with the theology. It always starts with the theory, if you will. So I ask you, do you comprehend who you are and why you're here? So I don't want you to rush past that question. If and when you do, then the flood of blessings will flow into you and out to those who are around you. Paul is going to set before us in glorious terms, the sovereign plan of salvation, and we're going to see how this is accomplished in Christ, and there is nothing in your life, nothing in your life that compares to the value of what Christ has done for you 
and the gift that he's given to you. Nothing. An inheritance is no good if you don't know what you have. Perhaps you've seen the cable program, uh, Strange Inheritance. On that show, it is common for someone to inherit something from a grandparent or great-grandparent, and uh, it might be something unusual like a massive insect collection or tractor collection or an attic full of stuff. And there in the midst of the attic, as they go through it, somebody discovers four boxes of baseball cards that have never been taken out of the package And there inside those packages, once the appraiser comes in and evaluates, it discovers that they discover this is worth millions at the auction house. So um, oftentimes they're initially overwhelmed or even dismayed by their inheritance. What am I going to do with this? Because they don't comprehend what it is. But slowly, uh, as they begin to comprehend the value of what they've inherited, uh, suddenly their, their perspective changes. And so they're soon delighted to learn of this value. Paul is calling us to read God's last will and testament to us, to find our names in his book, and in here is a description of what it is we have. He asks us to look around the attic. He asked us to call in the appraisers. What a delight to discover it is worth far more than you ever imagined. The more we learn what the Father has done for us in Christ, the more grace and peace are multiplied in us in very tangible ways. The more joy the more enthusiasm we will feel, the more gratitude, the more thanksgiving we will offer. And that's called worship. We'll say more about that. Much of the failure in our Christian lives is due to the fact that we do not know or we do not begin to understand what we already have. Not just what we're going to get. It's not pie in the sky. It's what we already have. Our doctrinal understanding is often superficial, and this has a direct bearing on failures in marriages and families and many other areas of our lives. I really believe that we will come to see that we have forfeited much grace and peace because we fail to know and to receive Christ and His work for us. We look for peace in all the wrong places because we don't think Christ is sufficient to provide it. We don't know who we are or why we are here. And it's really an age-old problem for God's people. In the Old Testament, Hosea said that God's people were dying from a lack of knowledge. If they had known, if they had remembered they could have saved themselves and their children a whole lot of trouble. And this is true for you and for me. To know who God is and what He has done means that we would not stray stray from Him at crucial moments. 
Instead, we often piddle around with the Christian faith. And as the author of the epistle to Hebrews said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles or the elementary things of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are mature. That is, those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Without meat, we have no strength. We skim over the top, we take small sips, we have a sample bite, we breathe shallow, and then we fall into a depression over our circumstances. How could we genuinely know and genuinely understand what it means to be in Christ and to be in possession of, as our text says, every spiritual blessing and ever be tempted to follow idols or wander away from God? How could we know that? Why would we ever want to give up that to be like the world? Again, our lack of knowledge is fatal So as Paul thinks about this, he starts his letter with a spontaneous doxology. How could we possibly think about the doctrine of salvation and not explode with praise and thanksgiving? The apostles' letters are filled with such such doxologies, and so should we be filled. If it's true that God sent His own Son into the world to do what the Gospel says that it does for us, then wouldn't we expect the results to be dramatic, not boring, not ho-hum, not routine, run-of-the-mill, but dramatic? Wouldn't you expect Christians to be substantially different from unbelievers and that everyone would be able to see the difference? So let me say a word about, I'm taking a parenthesis here in the sermon, let me say a word about the common charge that Christians are hypocrites. Now there are bona fide hypocrites that profess to believe the gospel but have no sincere desire to follow Christ. I like to put it this way, they are genuine phonies. The Bible condemns all such hypocrisy in bold terms. But then there are those who want to justify their own bad behavior by pointing out that Christians are nowhere close to perfect. They are inconsistent. In that sense, we're all hypocrites. We all contradict ourselves at some points, and there are eagle eyes always watching that can pick up on all those flaws. My dad reminded me that, age, that, at, that at age 17, I had pronounced that the church I grew up in was full of hypocrites. I'm pausing because it hits me with shame and embarrassment because he's right that I thought that, and I said that. What an idiot. 
in my youthful ignorance and arrogance, there was so much I didn't see. And I am so grateful to my parents that that church today still is there and still labors for Christ's sake to love and serve Him and labor in the gospel for Christ. The Bible has already said that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. <coughs> so when it comes to hypocrisy, I am not talking about sinless perfection, but I am talking about sinless direction. That's not the direction we're moving. We sin, we repent, we start over. The Bible, again, tells us, John informs us, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor he who does not love his brother. So, there must be a qualitative difference between us and the world. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, the world is very, a very miserable, excuse me, the world is very miserable and unhappy. It is full of cursing and complaints, but praise, thanksgiving, and contentment mark out the Christian and show that he is no longer of the world. As we assemble on the first day of each week to publicly worship, we do so to give thanks and to praise. And these things should self-consciously engage both our minds and our hearts. Paul is not just trying to fill the pages of his letter with this doxology. And and the doxologies are going to go on in the weeks ahead to cover several more verses in this opening chapter. And, And we are not just trying to fill time on a Sunday morning either. And so I ask you this morning, is your mind and your heart actively engaged in thanking and praising God? If not, then no matter how politely you sit here, you are not worshiping. Jesus said, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. That's the heart and truth, the mind Again, as Paul is careful to make sure we understand that this is not a vague deity that we are worshiping, but rather it is the Holy Trinity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The blessing comes through the Holy Spirit. God is blessed and we are blessed by Him. And so we are engaged in spiritual warfare. If you're not spiritual, then you're not spiritually aware, and you may as well be a mule listening to Handel's Messiah. You may look like you're listening, but you're not appreciating. We are called to do more. If you're not filled with praise and thanksgiving, it's because you don't perceive what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done for you. 
that could be evidence that you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. Or it could be evidence of infantile ignorance. In eternity past, God saw our desperate situation. Paul's going to address that in the next verse. The Father moved in harmony with the Son and with the Spirit to do something about that for you. You were were so utterly blind to it and incapable of doing anything about it, but He moved to do something. Jesus totally committed Himself to the Father, and He totally committed Himself to you. He is our representative, our substitute, our mediator, our guarantor. All blessings come through Him. So how are we going to press through every circumstance of our life with grace and peace? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, so how did, he, how did he get through the trials? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, endured the sh- uh, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And only as we come to understand something of these things will we, will we be able to have the perspective that we need to live our lives. I think we're often satisfied with superficial knowledge of the gospel. And when I say gospel, I mean the work of the triune God, especially in the person and work of Christ on our behalf, as it is effectually applied by the Holy Spirit. But we're not really interested in theology, are we? That's for theology wonks. We don't re- but you know, we don't like what we don't know. And when we plumb the depths of the doctrine of salvation, when we realize more and more who He is and what He's done for us, when we realize more and more what we are as a result of His work on our behalf, then we will truly begin to praise God and adore Him. We will say what Paul said here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the order in which Paul expressed these things. We tend to focus on what we get. Paul starts with God and worship. Again, Lloyd-Jones uses this illustration. We are not to rush into the presence of God in prayer or in any other respect. We must always start by realizing who God is. That's why in the Lord's Prayer we say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What would be thought, he said, of a person who tried to, uh, Lloyd-Jones was English, he said, what would be thought of a person who tried to rush into Buckingham Palace to see the Queen of England and refused to consider the matters of etiquette? Such an approach would be regarded as insulting, and yet we all tend to act in that manner with respect to Almighty God on account of our great concern to obtain a blessing. But the Apostle insists upon the right and appropriate order And we must only consider the nature of the blessing after we have worshipped God and praised His name and after we have realized what God has done in order that it might be possible for us to be blessed at all. 
Indeed, it is only as we adopt this apostolic order that we shall really begin to enjoy the blessing. <clears throat> the most unhappy people I know are the ones who are focused on themselves. What do they want? What do they need? What do they feel? One of the great paradoxes of Scripture is that the more we look to Him and look away from ourselves, the more blessed we'll be. As John the Baptist expressed it, He must increase and I must decrease. When Peter looked at Jesus, he walked on the water. And when he turned his eyes from there and looked to himself, he sunk. We're no different. The way to be blessed is to look to the source of all blessing. If you chase the blessing and not the source, you will come up short every time. Every blessing we enjoy as Christian people comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an exclusivity to the work of Jesus Christ. Many have and many do find this offensive, especially in our day. But really, it's not all that novel to our day. We're not, I, I like to stay away from this notion that somehow we're the special generation. We're somehow more enlightened than all those old-fashioned people in the past. Now, humanity's had this problem all along. It kind of ebbs and flows. And uh, we're, we're waxing right now on this notion. Because um, we think somehow if there's a hundred gods, then we're free to just go through the line and pick the one that suits us. Jesus, we're told, is welcome to the table as long as he allows others to be his equal. But he is God, and he has no equals. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He doesn't need any help. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I don't see how it could be any clearer than that. I mean, we could go on with more passages of Scripture, but it is absolutely certain that this is a claim to exclusivity because He's the true God, therefore He's truly able to save us. Because it takes the power of God to do that. It is our union with Christ that makes us what we are. We are in Christ. We're attached to Him. He's the head of the body, and from the head comes life, and we share in the life of the Son of God. Notice that these blessings, though, are described as spiritual blessings. They come through our union with Christ, but they are applied to us by the Spirit. They are blessings which are mediated from the Father through Christ by way of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that dwells in Jesus dwells in Christians. Do you not know that your bodies, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, Paul asked? Really? The Apostle John tells us that as he is, so are you in the world. 
How could a dead sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, ever be spiritual? Well, the Holy Spirit comes and makes us alive. Ephesians 2, when we get over there, chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now I want you to think about it. You're dead. You're not like sick or an ICU. You are dead. You can't do anything. If you're going to be rescued, it is going to take a miracle. It is going to take a resurrection. That's how desperate your condition is. The, the story of Lazarus is a historical story, but it's also there to teach us that we too already stink when God comes. It's beyond hopeless. He enables us to receive the things of the Spirit. He begins to give us insight into spiritual things. He does it all, but the 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The result is the necessary spiritual mind, spiritual outlook, and spiritual understanding. I want to pause for a minute and just insert a footnote here. I heard an old preacher once. People get really disturbed when you start messing with this idea of our free will. I want to say up front, you have a free will. But it's broken. That's the problem. You're free to do what you want to do. The problem isn't your lack of freedom. It's, it's your lack of want to. You need a change there. And that's God's work. And this guy said sometimes, he said, the problem is we, most of us have this little bitty Jesus. He says, what you need to do, if you don't know God, is cry out to him to have mercy on you. And if he wants to, he'll save you. So that's unnerving. That's not very nice. That takes me out of the driver's seat. You know, the problem is you've been in the driver's seat. It's time to get out. You don't know how to drive. You need him to drive. He's got to do something in you. The result is the necessary spiritual mind, spiritual outlook, spiritual understanding. These are some of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. He enables us to believe. Paul will elaborate this on chapter 2. For by grace, undeserved favor, for by grace are you saved through faith. Ah, that's what I contribute, faith. Oh, that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one, no man can boast. If you're saved, there is not one iota of area where you can say, oh, and I helped. Nope, you helped nothing. You contributed one thing, sin. These spiritual blessings then grow and expand as we apprehend and comprehend more and more of Christ so that we are enabled progressively to receive Christ's fullness. 
Notice how the phrase, just notice the phrase here in verse 3, in these spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Heaven and earth were ripped apart in paradise by sin. Christ and his work have begun reuniting the two. And he begins that work first in his people. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul wrote about this work in Colossians chapter 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We don't really belong to the earthly city or state. Our citizenship is not here, but in heaven. In the end, heaven will come down and be reunited to the new earth, but He has already, already begun that work in His new citizens. The Apostle Peter likewise expressed the same idea when he writes, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. We are but strangers and pilgrims in this world. We don't belong to this ruined place. Christ, excuse me, Christians are like people on a vacation. We should remember the country from which we've come and the realm to which we belong. In his epistle to the Colossians, Paul says, Set your affections on the things above, not on the things of the earth. The Christian, the Christian relationship to the world is that he realizes that it is God's world and that he can enjoy all that God has given him in and through it, but this is temporary. Now, if this, is the way, of think, if this way of thinking is foreign to you, then it is time for you to take the next step in your spiritual journey. None of these things are meant simply to be philosophical or theological musings. They are described, they describe the reality of our lives in Christ, and this makes a profound difference in how we live. It totally changes our perspective. The last word that I want us to notice in this text today is the word all. Blessing, blessed with all spiritual blessings. That's a little word, and yet a mighty word. It includes everything that we ever need. Peter, in the first chapter of his second epistle, says that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness are provided for us, and that we are given, given exceedingly great and precious promises. Nothing is greater, nothing more conceivable is is any better. Just to start with, he says, forgiveness and adoption. Lloyd-Jones again describes it like this. It's as if a miserable urchin in rags and tatters and filth in the street is taken by the hand and led to a palace and washed and adopted as a son and made a member of the family, and resulting from all this, we enjoy fellowship with God, with the Father, and with the Son through the Spirit. This is life eternal, that they may know Thee, and only the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Add to this the theme of progressive sanctification or growth, which means that you not only look clean, you are clean. 
Not only have you been clothed with the spotless robe of Christ's righteousness, but He is working within you and making you conformed increasingly to Himself until finally you will become spotless and blameless. Paul will pray in chapter 3, verse 19 of Ephesians, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. All the spiritual blessings are meant for all Christians, for you and for me. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. He doesn't say God intends to bless us in the future. Jesus has already secured all the blessings for us. We have to receive the promises of our inheritance along with the first installment. We already enjoy so much, but this is only the beginning. I'll close with 1 John 3. Beloved, I say, uh, now, beloved, we are now children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so, let us feast now on the first fruits of these spiritual blessings that are ours. And then we are, are prepared to truly burst forth in praise and worship him. All right, I want you to go away with some thought about how this is going to change your life this week. When you're facing a problem, a situation, a worry, a fear, whatever, are you going to remember who you are and why you're here? And that God's at work in that thing. And that in the midst of that, you can have peace, you can know His grace, you can be different, you can respond in a supernatural way. Father, we come before you now and acknowledge our weakness and our frailty and our ignorance and the fact that we have not even begun to plumb the depths of these truths. Hold before us continually the depth of your love for us and the greatness of your salvation. Enable us to understand as fully as sinful people can uh, the meaning of being blessed with Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Help us to grow in knowledge and grasp the depths of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Forgive us for treating our salvation as a trivial matter. And may the Holy Spirit stir us up today and move us to great and greater sanctification. And Lord, teach us how to appropriate all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Some of the chief spiritual blessings that we have in Christ is that we have been forgiven and adopted, and we are therefore welcomed to the family table to commune with our Heavenly Father. This is not only the high point of our worship service, it should be the thing that we anticipate each week and that we reflect upon each week. This is the place where we do remember who He is and what He has done for us, as well as the place where we remember who we are and why we're here. And while I know you have heard me say that a million times, I hope you hear me say it a million more. 
Because it's, it's the simple, central thing that we have to remember, and it's also the thing that we most easily forget. Allow me to use a phrase that Jesus used because he understood how it is possible for us to hear and yet not hear. And he uses this over and over. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not enough to have ears. We've got to use them. We have to listen to what he's saying, to what this table is saying, to what his words say. We have to hear it. Sometimes we've heard it a thousand times. You know how it is with your kids? You've told them something a thousand times. I know we would occasionally have somebody come spend the night at the house or come over for a meal, somebody, somebody else's kids. And we would say something and they would go home and announce it to their parents as though it was the first time they had ever heard it. And, and the parent would almost be complaining, like, I've told them that 50 times. And they go over to your house and they hear it and they act like it's the first time that it's a new discovery. That's okay. I don't care where they hear it or where it's soaked in. But we need to be aware that our nature and our hearts are dull of hearing. And so we need to push ourselves to hear, not just have the molecules hit the eardrums, but we need to hear. And so he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, Jesus did, and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. O Lord our God, teach us to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows our salvation, and that it sustains us. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches us and deals with our sin and washes us clean and renews our hearts and strengthens our wills and draws out our affection, kindles a flame in our souls, rules throughout our inner man, consecrates our every thought, word, and work, and teaches us to know your immeasurable love. How great are our privileges in Christ Jesus. Without him we stand far off as strangers and outcasts, In Him we draw near and touch His kingly scepter. Without Him we dare not lift up our guilty eyes. In Him we gaze upon our Father, God, and friend. Without Him we hide our lips in trembling shame. In Him we open our mouths in petition and praise. Without Him darkness spreads its horrors before us. In Him an eternity of glory is our boundless horizon. Without Him, all within us is terror and dismay. In Him, every accusation is changed into joy and peace. Without Him, all things external call for our condemnation. In Him, they minister to our comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Praise be to you for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Bless now this Lord's Day rest, fellowship, and feast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Amen.